thing here. So, Thank you, Brother Kelly. Well, good morning. If we've not met, I'm Pastor Nathan Brand. I'm the senior pastor here, and welcome to you who are in the overflow room and uh, online. We're glad you're here to worship with us. Uh, one thing I do want to point out is at the end of this service, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. And if you did not grab one of these cups outside in the foyer, you can do that. Take a moment to grab that. Or if you're at home and you want to grab some juice or something like that uh, and some crackers and participate with us uh, virtually, that'd be fantastic. But we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. Also, uh, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that we were looking to have one more outdoor service before this, uh, this year is over. And this morning, the uh, frost was just a little too much on the pumpkin, so we decided to delay that. Very likely, though, uh, we will be doing that next weekend out here on, on the lawn here on the east side. So just be watching your email for that, and we'll be making the call. You know, obviously, some of this is, is weather-related, and so uh, we don't want to freeze anyone out of this, and, you know, we want to make this the most uh, attractive opportunity to attend. So just be looking for that. So end of announcements. So behind me there are going to be some images. An acorn and an oak tree. A caterpillar and a butterfly. A lump of coal and a diamond. What do all these things have in common? Well, on the top, you have the item that's what a thing is at the very beginning, at the outset. How something starts out. An acorn. A seed. Basically squirrel food, right? A caterpillar. A worm that crawls on your plants in your garden. Most, you're, not, you're not wanting it there. You, you don't want it to eat up your tomato plant. It's bird food, right? Coal. It's a rock, a black rock. And if you find use for it, it might be throwing it in your fire, feeding the fire. But the second, the second item is what the final product is. So from a Acorn to an oak tree. Wow. That's pretty amazing, that transformation. A caterpillar to a monarch butterfly. Something that was kind of ugly, now very beautiful. A lump of coal becoming a diamond. Doesn't come out quite that cut and clean, but you get the point. But what's missing? What's missing between A and Z, if you will? The process that each of those items go, goes through. The adversity. The opposition. The time that it takes to get there. And you see, if they don't go through that adversity, through that opposition, through that the transformation, these items never become what God fully intended. Then do you found that to be true in your own life, just what you experience? 
Maybe you feel like you're kind of starting out as an acorn or a caterpillar, a lump of clay and of coal, and God is bringing you through some adversity to shape you and grow you into what you should fully be. And that's what the people of God are experiencing today as we return to the book of Ezra. So if you want to open your books, your uh, Bibles up to that, um, that's great. That's where we'll be today. Last week, we saw in Ezra 3, God's people start to enter into rebuilding worship. It started with rebuilding the altar. And uh, they probably had to knock down another altar that was there to, to put that in place, just as God had commanded in His Word. And then they laid the foundation of the temple. And there was a, a kind of a confusing celebration. For those who had, this was their first time experiencing the temple, they were excited. And for those who had seen the, the old temple, there was weeping because they weren't quite sure that this was going to be what they thought it should be. But there was a great celebration and, again, trying to restore worship. This week, we're going to see that God's people experience opposition. We see they experience adversity as they're seeking to now, from the foundations, or build or rebuild this temple in the city of Jerusalem. And they experience external opposition. But God will use this to grow them up and to make them fully what he intends them to be. That is, to be his holy people, to be set apart for him, and to be wholly dependent upon him. So, before we dive in, let me pray for us, and then we'll look at God's word here in Ezra chapter 4. So Lord, you don't waste anything. And you use even adversity to get us to where you want us to be. And Lord, I pray that you'll open our eyes to see what you have for us in your word. And this is a word that was written thousands of years ago, but it is still as relevant, still as applicable to us today. So open our eyes to see that. And help us to see that, ultimately how that manifests itself in Jesus Christ. And so it's in his name we pray these things. Amen. So think about this. If you ever, growing up, were the new kid in town, the new kid at school, maybe there were some people who were befriending you that seemed overly friendly to try and, you know, make an acquaintance with you. And you find out after a while that their motives aren't completely pure. They're for reasons of wanting to take advantage of you, to exploit you, to use you, to control you. And this is how things start out here in Ezra chapter 4. So let's just read the first three verses of the chapter. It says this, When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build. Because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Ezraharadan, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. Now, now think about this. Remember what's taking place. There are about 50,000 people who have returned from exile. They're in a city where the walls are torn down or breached. 
and unprotected. They are vulnerable. What do these people need, at least in a practical sense? They need allies. They need friends. They need people who, if they aren't going to help protect them, at least they aren't going to attack them, right? That's kind of the practical thing that they're looking for. And so this group from the area, a little bit up north, they come and they say, hey, we want to help you rebuild the temple. In fact, we've been sacrificing to your God ever since uh, Ezra Herodin brought us here in 681 B.C. If you don't know who that was, that was the king of Assyria. And what this is pointing to is the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, after the kingdom had been split between Judah and Israel. This is when they were completely conquered by the Assyrians and they were exiled. And then the Assyrians brought in people from Babylon and, and that area and put them here in this area. And those people didn't know anything about the Lord, anything about Yahweh, the, the God of Israel. And God said, this is my land. And so he starts sending lions to attack the people who have moved into this area. And they go, whoa, whoa, we don't know anything about this God. Bring back a priest here so he can teach us about what this God is like. And you can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 17, starting at verse 24 and throughout the end of the chapter. And so this, this priest comes back to Bethel and starts teaching this people about what it means to worship the Lord. And where were they? They were stationed in an area called Samaria. That ends up becoming the Samaritans as we get into the New Testament. So they want to partner. They want to rebuild the temple with the Jewish people. But it's a good idea sometimes before you make alliances with people you're not sure are following God the same way to look back, look at back at history before you make an agreement and a partnership with those who are outside of the people of God. Yes, they worshipped Yahweh. But they also worshipped their own gods from the land of Babylon. They were syncretists. They, they wanted to have their feet in both camps. And so they weren't really worshipping God alone. And what's the first commandment? <laughs> you know, you shall have no gods besides me. And so this is a conflict of interest. There's mixed loyalties, mixed motives. And what got the people of, of God in trouble to begin with? They started making alliances and agreements and started acting like the people around them rather than being you know, the people of God. They were adopting ungodly customs. They were adopting their methods of worship because, but God had called them to be a holy people, to be his people, and to do only what he commanded, not what the nations around them did. So, here's the thing. And I think we all know this practically. When you partner with somebody, when you agree to invite them in to be a part of your process, those people have some ownership. They have a stake in the process of the project. They have some influence and who's going to reign and rule in this and, and by the way it was probably the Samaritans altar that got torn down by the people of God and, and replaced with the one according to 
uh, the word of Moses. And so the people of God decided there was too much at stake. We are building a holy temple to a holy God. You can't risk the compromise. We can't risk the unholy influence. And so this is how the people of God answer in verse 3. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Woo, that's not very friendly. That's not even Minnesota nice. That's really direct, like, whoa, you were excluded? And from an evangelical standpoint, you think, how will these people be one to the Lord? But the Jews were not so concerned about what these people thought because their first loyalty was to the Lord God himself and pleasing him and doing what was right in his eyes. And again, as as evangelicals, people who are trying to influence people for Jesus, remember, Jesus was friend of sinners, right? Jesus went to a Samaritan woman. And uh, so we, we kind of go, what's this about? What's this about? But here's the principle that we need to put in place. When an unbeliever has more influence over a believer and vice versa, it's an unhealthy or unholy alliance. And by the way, did you see how the, how the verse started out in verse 1? The enemies of Judah and Benjamin. You see, we'll see that their interest in partnering is not so much about wanting to be a part of worship of the Lord, but it's, it's, it's an interest of having an influence, having a say on how things get done. We're going we're gonna to influence how this is going to happen. We're going to worship Yahweh, but we're going we're gonna to throw in some of our gods too. Hope that that will happen. And there's a tension for us as believers, because we want to be salt and light, don't we? But there are times when we have to say, okay, who is influencing who? You know, many of us are involved with Minnesota Adult Teen Challenge and supporting that ministry. By the way, their gala, their virtual gala is this week, so if you're interested, that's Thursday. If you want to know about that, come talk to me, but um, it'd be a great chance to support that ministry. But so many of those clients have to leave some of those relationships in the past because they go, you know what, that person influenced me the wrong way, even though they don't know Christ. And they have to trust that someone else will come alongside of them and share the word of Christ with them. There are times where we have to say, no, I I can't partner with that person. I can't be involved with that person. The Apostle Paul will say it this way. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 15. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? I'm always concerned when I hear about a believer dating someone who's not a follower of Christ. Because I'm always concerned that that 
relationship is going to lead them away from the Lord rather than leading the believer to the Lord. Sometimes we can't make alliances or partnerships with people because it's going to lead us in the wrong direction. Sometimes in the area of business, what have you, but there are times where we're called to be separate. So here's the question I have for us. How is it that we respond to those we suspect have false motives? Someone who want to get their hand of influence in there. And for each of us to ask the question, are there relationships, are there alliances that have a worldly influence on us that cause us to think and act in a manner that is contrary to that of the Word of God? And maybe we need to cut those things off for our own spiritual health. And because the Lord is our first priority. He is our first love. And folks, I'm all for being salt and light in this community. Don't hear me that we should be in this holy cocoon. But what I am saying, you have to do your own assessment. Say, okay, who's influencing who? Who's having an impact on whom? And is there conflict when we resist these influences of these alliances? Absolutely. Absolutely there is. And this is what the people people of God experience as you continue on. Pick it up at verse 4 through 5. Then the peoples around them, after they said, you have no part in this, they set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. And they bribed officials to work against them to frustrate their plans during the entire reign of, of Cyrus, the king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. Note that worship of Yahweh is out the door now. They're not waiting and seeing, saying, okay, you know, maybe we'll let a little time pass and come back. No. They're going, okay, if that's the case, we're going to make your life miserable. We're going to discourage you. We're going to frighten you. We're going to intimidate you. And we're going to see this all throughout the end of Ezra and the, into Nehemiah. Their true colors came out. And how are they going to do it? What were their means? By bribing officials or literally hiring counselors. These were men who were hired to give counsel to leadership, to, to governors, to kings to work against and frustrate them. They were people in power that were going to do whatever they could to go against the rebuilding of the temple. We could call them lobbyists. There's nothing new under the sun here as far as political action. Whatever they could do, put a roadblock in the way. Maybe close down a road, supplies withheld, make different hoops that the Jews had to comply with. You know, it's interesting. I, I did my undergrad at a secular university at the University of California, Davis. And this was true way back in the 80s. For those of you who can remember the 80s. But I found that Christian organizations always had struggled with a little bit of a, a double standard in relation to other organizations. I mean, the university was supposed to be the marketplace of ideas, Right? All these ideas coming in and all sorts of foolishness would pour in at University of California, Davis. I, I, I can tell you stories, but 
here's, here's the point. You know, whenever we want to have our club at certain, certain places, we always seem to have more hoops to jump through. We always seem to experience more adversity. Why is that? What's going on there? And here's my point. If you desire to do something for the kingdom of God and advance his kingdom, then expect opposition. Just expect it. Satan, the prince of this world, is blinding and influencing unbelievers to react in opposition to any advancement of his kingdom. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when you're trying to to make a difference for the kingdom of God that there's roadblocks. There's opposition. And then when we get into verse 5, this was true during the reigns of King Cyrus, who we met in chapter 1, all the way through King Darius, kings of Persia. Now, this is going to be a little tricky, but I want to clarify some things here. Both of them were very, very uh, pro-Jewish. They were pro-Jewish to uh, the things that happened. In chapter 1, again, we see Cyrus, you know, he makes this declaration that the Jews could return and rebuild the temple. And, this, you know, even encouraging the people of the state to, to support that. But what happens, we don't see, is he has a son named Cambyses. And he is, after uh, Cyrus dies, in 530 to 522 BC, he becomes really ambitious and starts going down to Egypt and trying to conquer Egypt. And at that point, temple building stops. Now, it's not reflected here in the, in the, the text, except just kind of a big, broad broad statement. But the, the construction stops during that time. And so after he conquered Egypt, he's on his way back to Persia because there's another, there's conflict and he gets wounded and he dies. And after he dies, there's another man who claims the throne. His, his name is Pseudo Smyrnaeus. He's got another name, but I don't think we need to know that. And Darius, who is uh, Cambyses' Um, general in, in Egypt, he's going, this is not right. So he heads back to Persia. And there's a mini civil war for that year of, of uh, 522 BC. And finally he conquers and becomes the king. All right? So the Persian Empire has been in disarray. You know, different, different factions. And it takes two years for Darius to kind of rein things in and kind of be in command. And then in 520 BC, you know, a request comes to Darius about rebuilding the temple, and that's when it is restored. And by the way, Darius is the same guy who Daniel experiences. So Daniel and the lion's den, that story. So here's why this is important. Because as we continue on in verses 6 through 23, this theme of opposition to the work of God's people and the work of God, it continues. In fact, if you have an NIV, it'll say before verse 6, it'll say later opposition under Xerxes and Artaxerxes. Well, who are these guys? Well, Xerxes was the son of Darius. And he is the same king that we meet in Esther, by the way. 
So if you want to see how that's connected. But opposition, people, you know, counselors come and say, hey, those Jews, you know, maybe a guy named, uh, what is his name? Haman, yeah. And then you get to Artaxerxes, who's the son of Xerxes. And he's the king during Ezra and Nehemiah's time. Ezra hasn't even shown up in this book. Remember that. We're going to see him in, in chapter 7. But Artaxerxes is going to be influenced by the officials to halt the building, the rebuilding of the, the wall and the city. But he'll also give re- permission to Nehemiah to start building it up again. So let's read the letter that caused Artaxerxes to stop. Now, one other thing I want you to know, and this is strange, the Hebrew Bible is written in Hebrew and Aramaic. And this is the portion where the Bible is written in Aramaic. Aramaic is the, the lingua franca or the, the trade language of the time. Okay, and the reason that the author includes this is because he wants to include this official document. And so it's, it'd be like the difference between Spanish and Italian. Both Semitic languages, they have a lot of similarities, but they have some differences too. So this is true from this verse all the way through 615. But we're not even going to get to 6 today. But let's l- read the, lang- the, the letter. Verse 11, this is the copy of the letter sent to him. To Artaxerxes from your servants and trans-Euphrates, which actually means over the river. They're on the other side of the river, so that's the name of the province. The king should know that the people that came up to us from you have gone up to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious, wicked city. They are restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built, its wall and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute, or duty will be paid. And eventually the royal revenues will suffer. Now, since we are under the obligation to the palace, it is not proper for us to see the king dishonored. And we are sending this message to inform the king so that a search may be made in the archives of your predecessors. In these records you will find that this city is a rebellious city, troublesome to kings and provinces, a place with a long history of sedition. That is why this city was destroyed. We inform the king that if this city is built and its walls are restored, you will be left with nothing in trans-Euphrates. So... King Artaxerxes, you need to make a search or else you're not going to get any taxes. And by the way, we're so concerned about your honor and you'll be dishonored. Yeah, right. And, you know, if the walls are rebuilt, you'll basically have nothing because these people will be the power in the area. So Artaxerxes, he bites. He bites on this. And this is his response, verse 17. The king sent this reply to Rahim, the commanding officer, and Shimshai, the secretary and the rest of the associates living in Samaria and elsewhere in trans-Euphrates. Greetings. The letter you sent us has been read, translated in my presence. I issued an order, and a search was made, and it was found that the city has a long history of revolt against kings and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole of trans-Euphrates, and taxes and tribute and duty were paid to them. Now, issue an order that these men stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt until I order so. And by the way, he will order so later on in Nehemiah. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow 
and the de- to the detriment of the royal interests. Verse 23, as soon as the copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read to Ram and Shimshai, the secretary and their associates, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. Basically, an army was sent, said, you are not going to continue this work. Now, why is this so important? Well, number one, I just want you to be clear on what happens. Because Artaxerxes shutting down the building is not shutting down the building of the temple. It's shutting down the building of the wall and its foundations. Because at verse 24 it says, Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius the king of Persia. But Artaxerxes is Darius's grandson. So just so we have order in that. And in verse 12, remember it says, the rebuilding that rebellious wicked city are, re- are restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. There's no mention of the temple there. Here's the purpose, though, of the author. The purpose is to see that opposition comes to every generation who are seeking to live godly lives and advance the kingdom of God. That is why this is here. Ezra is going to arrive 50 years after the temple is built. Remember, he hasn't even showed up yet on the scene. But he's going to experience inward opposition. Nehemiah will come 13 years after, after um, Ezra, and opposition he'll experience opposition to rebuilding the wall as well as internal fighting to remain God's holy people. But let's bring it back today. Let's pull it out of history. You see... If, again, we're seeking to be godly people and advance the kingdom of God, we're going to experience opposition. Here's a great promise in the scriptures. 2 Timothy 3.12. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Amen. Let's go live it out. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's just going to happen. If you're living for this kingdom, if you're looking to live a godly life, you're going to be persecuted. And here's what I want you to know, folks, for all of us. Just because you're struggling does not mean you're failing. Just because you're struggling does not mean you're failing. We live in a world that's seeking to silence us or shape us through entertainment, education, politics, public pressure, political correctness. Don't buy into the lie. If the Lord were behind what you're doing, it would just be smooth sailing. It would be much easier. You would have instant success. It doesn't work that way. Honestly, more likely, the opposite. If you're doing what God is calling you to do, you're probably going to experience opposition. You're probably going to experience people calling you names, making false accusations about you. But on the other side, the Lord is using this to shape you and to make you what he wants you to be even when things seem to be coming to a standstill. Here's a verse that many of us are familiar with. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. 
Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. God uses adversity to shape us into men and women who are more like Jesus, who are perfected by it. Not perfect, but mature, grown up. So you become more like Jesus. You know what? If you see a chrysalis, a hibernating caterpillar that's being transformed into a butterfly, and then you see that thing starting to open up, and you see it struggling, and you think, oh, that poor creature is working so hard. I think I'll help it out. And you take some like mini you know, manicuring scissors and just cut the little strands there that are holding it in. And you help release that butterfly. You know what happens? The fluid that's supposed to be forced into its wings never get there and the thing never develops. And it becomes a useless creature and never fully becomes what it's supposed to be. You see, if you're following God, God is using adversity to shape you into a man, into a woman who is more like Jesus. We don't always like it. It's not always fun. But that is the end result. That is that oak tree. That is that butterfly. That is that diamond that's being shaped and forced by the pressure and the heat and the time to make you something beautiful and useful for the kingdom of God. You become more mature, more complete, more dependent, more like Him. This is what Jesus said, chapter 16 of John, verse 33. I have told you these things so that, you, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, guarantee. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Take heart, I have overcome the world. And so God's people who are here at this standstill, nothing is moving forward. The government has shut down their building project to build the temple. What do they do? They're going to have to look to the one who not only holds all of the world in his hands, but has overcome the world. And spoiler alert, the temple will get rebuilt. We're going to see that next week. And God's fingerprints are all over it. And we're going to see that in chapters 5 and 6 next week if you want to read ahead. But you know, as I am interacting with people, so often I hear this statement. Oh, I wish this COVID thing were over. I wish this COVID thing were over. As believers in Christ, what do we believe as far as a sovereign God? And who's allowed this to happen? It's here by God's permission, whether we like it or not. And my question for us who are followers of Jesus Christ, how are you allowing this adversity to shape you into a man, into a woman who is more like Jesus? God has 
brought us to a screeching halt. So how does he want to shape you? How does he want to shape me during this time? That's something for us to consider. And here's one more thing I want you to consider. Even Jesus himself was shaped by opposition and adversity and suffering. Just a sample size out of Hebrews chapter 2, starting at verse 9. But we do see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for a while, that is, when he put on flesh, dwelt among us, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone to bring many sons and daughters to glory. And it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Jesus went through an adversity process and was made perfect to be our Savior by what he suffered. And then on to verse 14 in the same chapter. Since the children, speaking of men and women, have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Even our Lord Jesus was shaped by suffering to become the Savior that we needed. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And so it's our custom here at Berean Community Church to celebrate and remember what the Lord did in coming to this earth, living this life, offering himself up on the cross for us because he became the perfect sacrifice in his suffering for us. And it was our sin that put him on the cross.